Hello again. Uh, if you need uh, the scriptures this morning, the Bible, the ESV and the like, you can find copies in the back of the church. We'll be going through the book of Philemon here this morning. And as we get going, the, the theme before us is set free. We're set free, and as God sets us free, we're to be instruments of his grace and mercy and his love, those instruments that lead to other people being set free, as we see in the book of Philemon this morning. And Lord, I just pray as we get going this morning that you would set free uh, on a daily basis our hearts and our lives, that as we are reformed by your word daily, that you would move us out in such a way as your people to be those instruments of your freedom, of your grace that liberates the captive and sets people free. May we be those agents of your liberating grace today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Philemon and Colossians. I don't know how well you can see this painting, but it's one of my favorite paintings of the Apostle Paul, the Damascus Road experience from Caravaggio. And there he is, knocked off his horse. I don't know if he was on a horse or a camel or what he was on. But he's, he's knocked off of it. And as you know from the text in Acts chapter 9, he's blinded. He's blinded before the Lord and he's helpless. No more opportunity for his hubris or his arrogance, his haughtiness and the like. The Lord Jesus has mercy on him by breaking Paul as he is Saul. And just like in the movie The Mission where the slave trader is brought to his knees through that act of penance, even though I'm not a Catholic just for the sake of the movie, uh, through this act of penance, God works through this situation and using the very people that this slave trader had enslaved to free him, so too God's grace will break through to Paul's life as Saul through not only Christ the Lord, but also through the people who are used to intervene in Paul's life when he saw to set the captive free. So as we proceed here in this text of Colossians 4, but most, most importantly for our purposes this morning, Philemon, the theme I'd like to address, address here is the good news of Jesus Christ sets individuals and communities free. So often we have an emphasis in the American culture by way of the individual. And while the individual is uh, of great importance to God, the individual is never set forth apart from the community. And we see this in the context of the text this morning from Philemon, as we'll be reading from it together in a little while. So the good news of Jesus Christ sets the individual and the community free. And as F.F. F. Bruce says in his biography on the Apostle Paul's life, Paul is the apostle of the heart set free. And Paul is going to make his admonition to Philemon on the freedom of the good news of Jesus Christ that has liberated Paul, who had enslaved Christians, he calls on Philemon to free his slave, Onesimus, who had come to faith through Paul. He calls on him, that is Philemon, to set free the slave. Paul is freed by God. We see in Acts chapter 9, freed by God in the community of faith that did not let his past get in the way. And while we're not looking at the book of Acts this morning, I want to look at that as the background for everything that goes on in Paul's life as Saul becomes Paul. Acts 9, what we find here, and it's striking because just as I said before, this slave trader in the movie Mission is kind of like the Apostle Paul, is that God liberates him, but God in his grace liberates him even through the 
of this indigenous community, this indigenous people whom he has enslaved, God uses by his grace these people to be the very instruments through whom the forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus Christ comes through to this slave trader, Rodrigo. In Paul's context, it's striking to me, as Saul is knocked off his horse or his camel or whatever he's knocked off, it's the very men he had gone with letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to Damascus to have these Christians enslaved, perhaps put to death, families separated. The very people whom he had gone with, with those letters, are the very men who have to lead him by the hand as he's blinded, have to lead him by the hand to Ananias. And Ananias, who doesn't want to have anything to do with this Saul because of all the reports about him, reaches out and has to lay hands on Saul. Paul, in my estimation, has been so filled with arrogance, hubris, and the like that I don't think he was someone who ever really looked to people to give him a helping hand. And yet in this text, we see these men who had accompanied him having to lead him by the hand since he's blind to Ananias. Ananias has to lay his hand on Paul for Paul to receive, that is Saul, to receive his sight. And then what we also find is that when Saul goes to the Jerusalem context more, he needs Barnabas to offer him the right hand of fellowship. So at least three times in this text in Acts 9, Saul is not simply receiving the mercy of God, but also the mercies of others. And in the church context, it's the very hand of the son of encouragement, Barnabas, through whom the people of faith no longer fear Saul, but welcome him in. And as I say here, he is freed by God and the community of faith that did not let his past get in the way. And it's true from Scripture that when we confess our sins to one another, we are healed. So it's a vertical confession to God, but also a horizontal confession as well that goes on in the biblical account. For Paul, to be like Paul and the community of faith today, like in his day, like his community, to be set free by God's grace in relationship to one another. Koinonia, where it's mutuality, where we all need one another. There's no sense of charity where one looks down on the other and says, I will give you grace. Rather, we all see ourselves as debtors to God's grace and in need of God's grace in relationship to one another. And that's going to have a bearing on the story, I believe, of Philemon before us today. The one who changed Christians, the one who chained Christians, now is in chains for Christians. Colossians is one of his prison epistles in his first Roman imprisonment. And as he says to Philemon, he's writing to him from his prison cell in Rome. I don't know about you, but one of the reasons why I believe in Jesus Christ is because of what happened to this Saul. He despised Christ. Eric, Pastor Eric, had alluded to the text in 1 Corinthians in his opening prayer this morning. Not many of us were great by the world's standards. God chooses the foolish. God chooses the weak to honor God because Christ himself, though foolish, though weak by the world's standards, is the very wisdom and the power of God, the power of the cross, which the Corinthian church needed to learn about, so too the American church today. And this Saul, who had hated Christ and had hated Christians because of their testimony to Christ, because anyone who was hung on a tree is cursed, he now becomes the greatest proponent of this good news of this crucified and risen Jesus. 
To me, that is a great testimony to the veracity or the truthfulness of the Christian claim about Jesus' death and bodily resurrection. So the one who had chained Christians now becomes the very means through which Christians themselves are liberated, and he is willing to be put in chains, and desirous even of being put in chains for the gospel so that people could be free. To me, that is the ultimate good news of an apostle whose heart has been set free. Am I close enough to the microphone that it's picking up? Do I need to be closer here? Okay, need to be closer here. Okay. I need to be enslaved, not set free this morning. So uh, Paul's call to remember his chains in Colossians 4.18, he ends his prison epistle here. Is this better? <laughs> Whether you want to hear me or not, uh, you're with me for now. So Colossians 4.18 I love how he closes off his letter by saying, remember my chains. For him, it's an honor to bear these chains, to wear these chains in service to Christ. In a culture that we so often breathe the air of, where people sense they're entitled to things. And so often I feel like I'm entitled to God's grace. And even though it's mine, it's mine by grace. I'm not entitled to God's grace and mercy. And so often we demand of God rather than live in light of his mercy, there's a word here for us today to remember Paul's chains. Paul's call to Philemon in this epistle, namely Philemon, is to free Onesimus, Philemon's slave, in view of their own hearts, namely Philemon's heart, and also now Onesimus's heart, as Paul had been the instrument of God's grace in Onesimus coming to faith in Christ, I believe, in Rome, that Paul's call to them is involving their hearts being set free and also Paul's own heart having been set free. Philemon 8 through 22 of the epistle. Paul had a debt of gratitude to pay to the Lord. So too did Philemon have a debt of gratitude to pay to the Lord. And so Paul says, free Onesimus. This comes home to me before we get into the text. Just several years ago at Cedar Mill Bible, I had the privilege of hearing from Dr. John M. Perkins, a mentor of mine, a dear friend of mine, someone whom I've partnered with in ministry, an African-American civil rights leader, an evangelical civil rights leader from the state of Mississippi. And I won't go into all of his message this morning of what he shared at Cedar Mill Bible, but what he said there that morning still rivets my heart, and it riveted the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ at Cedar Mill Bible. As this guest speaker in his late 70s at the time, John Perkins, spoke in light of Romans 1 about his debt of gratitude that he had to the Lord. John Perkins had been raised in the deep south of Mississippi, and there in Mississippi he talks about it in a variety of contexts, including his book, Let Justice Roll Down, one of Christianity Day's top 50 books in its estimation. He talks about how he had been radically converted to Christ. He'll say this of himself, that he was a third-grade dropout. He was a sharecropper's son. His mother died breastfeeding him because of malnutrition, because of the injustices in his state. His mother died of malnutrition just when he was a little baby. He never had a picture of his mother. And he said it was only a few years ago that he realized he wasn't the reason 
he, he wasn't the cause of his mother's death, that he didn't kill her. It was from other forces. But he grew up thinking that somehow or another he had killed his mother because she died of malnutrition. And God radically transformed his life, though he had been enslaved in this context of the Deep South with its oppression of African Americans. God reached into his life, transformed his heart, transformed his life, came back to Mississippi after being in California, started doing Bible studies, community development. In 1970, working amongst the poor there, the police decided to uh, beat him, to beat him within inches of his life. And when it was simply for getting community development out and care for his own people, the African-American people, they decided we've had enough of this man, this Reverend John Perkins, and they set about to kill him, or come close to killing him, rather, putting a fork up his nose in a prison cell, uh, shredding several of his vital organs with their kicks, their punches, their blows. He came up to battleground to recover from it, but he actually had a heart attack in 1970 or so from this near-fatal beating. And he said, even in a context at Reed College a few years earlier, back in around 2001, before he had spoken at Cedar Mill, he said, God called him through that beating, that near-fatal beating, not simply to care for his own people, the African-American people, but to care for all people, including these white oppressors, because he realized that they were enslaved, that their hearts needed to be set free. Something horrible must have happened to each one of these men who oppressed him in that prison cell, these police officers. Why would they hate him, a human being who had done nothing wrong to them? Surely they needed to be set free, and God caused him to have compassion toward them that they would be set free. And he said to the Reed students the night he spoke there in 2000, 2001, he said, God called me through that near-fatal beating, not simply to community development for my own people, but to race reconciliation to all people. And then, back in around 2004 or so, as I said, he spoke at Cedar Mill Bible. That message was different that night, but he said, I have a debt of gratitude. I'm thinking, third grade dropout? Being beaten within an inch of your life? Living under oppressive conditions for much of your life? Living amongst the poor? You have a debt of gratitude? He said, I have such a debt of gratitude because of God's grace and mercy in my life that has set me free. The pastor at Cedar Mill was weeping. The people were weeping both services because they realized, no doubt, like I did and I do, what sense of entitlement do I live under rather than God's grace and mercy? And they were struck by the mercy and grace of this man, John Perkins, this modern-day Apostle Paul who had borne the chains and the marks of Christ of how much of a debt of gratitude we have. And that's what Paul will say to this slave owner, Philemon, that you, like I, Philemon, have a debt of gratitude, so free the captive. Free the captive. We have a debt of gratitude to pay. Now, if you cannot read this, uh, I'm in your debt. Uh, so would you please get out your Bibles? We're, it's from the ESV. And um, there are a few words here that I'll make note of as we go through because I think they're key to the text here in Philemon. But I'm going to ask that we read it together. So if you could, if you can see the screen, please read it with me. If you can't, just meditate or else read from your uh, pew Bibles. So one, two, three. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our bro beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you 
in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you, your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a fellow brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless his word to our hearts and our lives. So Paul's writing from his prison cell in Rome, and he's writing to Philemon, someone I believe who had been vitally impacted by Paul's ministry. And Paul says, I could command you to do this. As I read the text, I take this to be his exhortation for Philemon to free this slave of his, Onesimus, to free him because now he's become a member of the body of Christ. He's become a brother in the Lord as he went to Rome, that is Onesimus, fled his master, I believe. He comes into contact with Paul, who's under house arrest, and Paul leads him to Christ. And now Paul, being blessed by him, wants him to go back to his slave owner, but not as a slave, but I believe as a brother in Christ, freed and a co-equal with Philemon in the gospel ministry. And he could command Philemon as his elder, as the apostle, but he says, rather, I make this uh, appeal to you. I want to make an appeal to you rather than come down hard on you. I make this appeal to you. And I have highlighted a couple of words here, which sharing, thank you, and 
partner down below. Sharing and partner to the right. Thanks. Verse 17, and partner, both come from this word we know as koinonia, and this idea of fellowship, of mutual benefit, of partnership in the gospel, of communion that is mutual, where there is give and take, again, where there is mutuality. And also, the word heart, heart, and heart. And so you can be looking at your text there, if you can't see it all on the screen, but I believe Paul's exhortation or his appeal to Philemon is just this. It is, you have refreshed people's hearts. Hearts here, their compassion. The word there is heart, it's guts, it's compassion. comes from the word splachna. You have refreshed the saints' hearts. And I'm thankful, Philemon, for how you have refreshed people's hearts. And then he goes on to say later that Onesimus, who used to be useless to you, but now should be seen as useful to you and is useful to me. In fact, he has become my very heart, my very guts, my very compassion. He has become part of me. So just as you, Philemon, have refreshed the saints' hearts, this Onesimus, your slave, he has refreshed my heart. In fact, he has become my heart. And Paul's admonition here, his appeal is, just as you have refreshed people's hearts, and Onesimus is my heart, now I'm asking you to refresh his heart by freeing him. Paul says to Philemon, you have my very life in your hands, my very heart in your hands. So he's calling on him, as Paul is a debtor to God's grace, going back to Acts 9, a debtor to God's grace. Philemon is a debtor to God's grace and a debtor to Paul who had such an influence on his life. He says, now you have my heart in your hands as Onesimus goes back to you. I encourage you, I appeal to you, free him so that he might be truly our equal in the gospel ministry. Thank you. It's up to me to turn the slide. I forgot that. The church today, because this message is in part engaging the theme of evangelism, are we being evangelized even as we evangelize. I don't believe that one can lose one's salvation. But I think that there is this, as Daryl Guter has talked about in one of his books, an ongoing, continual conversion of the church. In the Reformed context, we talk about it in this way, that the church is to be daily reformed by the word. We're not simply reforming, but we are reformed by the word. Is that not part of your own heritage? That we are reformed daily by the word and as God speaks into our lives through the Spirit, through the Word, our lives are transformed so that as we go forth, we really go forth with the good news of those whose hearts have been continually set free by the good news of Jesus Christ. And here I refer to John Wesley, someone who does not necessarily represent every aspect of the Reformed tradition, but he does come out of that Reformation heritage in many respects. And here he was a seminary graduate. And we're going to look at a letter from John Wesley in a little while. He'd been a seminary graduate, trained at one of the greatest schools in his country, in England. And he was sent on a missions trip to the Americas. Sent on a missions trip to the Americas to save the heathen, the Native Americans, the indigenous people. He was sent to do that work. And yet, it was a miserable ordeal for him. It did not go well for him. And in his journals, 
it is said that on the way back on the ship from the Americas to England, he said, I was sent to the Americas to save the heathen, but who will save me? And I went to school for my doctoral studies at King's College London in London, England, and in front of the London Museum, there's this stone from Aldersgate, because it's right there in Aldersgate, where Wesley had gone one night to a rally, to a, a meeting. He didn't want to go, but the person who was preaching at that meeting was reading from Luther's commentary to the Galatians. And as the person was reading from the commentary to the Galatians, from Luther's commentary on the Galatians, Wesley says, as I heard the words of God's love and of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, my heart was strangely warmed, and I had full assurance that Christ had died for my sins and had saved me, had saved all of me. He was free at last. He was free at last. And God would use John Wesley and Charles Wesley, whose words we sung this morning, and Wilberforce, whom we'll allude to here in a little bit, to be huge instruments of God's mercy and grace in the abolition of slavery in the UK. And also, I believe, through their work, it had an impact on the abolition of slavery in the Americas. But what difference does that make in our own context today? We'll come to that. So are we evangelized as Wesley was needing evangelization to be the instrument of God's grace and mercy toward others? We ourselves, those saved, need to be renewed and transformed daily and to be moved beyond our own sense of entitlement and self-sufficiency. So the church today, as I'm sure you well know from scripture, there is an internal transformation and a vertical transformation that goes on. And yet so often, <coughs> excuse me, so often in our context as evangelicals, we tend to look only at this side of things. And while it's so true and so important to transformation for justice concerns, it's not all there is. And some commentators on the book of Philemon, I think wrongly have looked upon it to say that all God is calling upon Philemon to do is to have a change of heart toward Onesimus, his former slave, but not to change his social condition. I think it's not simply about an internal vertical transformation, but also that it has huge social import of a transformation of social conditions. There's a problem in the American context that in the 1960s when Martin Luther King Jr. marched, evangelicals by and large, my movement, my community, my people, were not with him. And John Perkins, whom I alluded to, one of the great evangelical figures of justice in our own day, said, where were we as a movement when King marched? We weren't there. And it's because in part, and I don't have time to go into the history of it, with the fundamentalist movement, we emphasize so the vertical and the internal that we lost sight of the social transformation that was also a part of Paul's letter here to Philemon. So there is that vertical and internal transformation that's so key to our movement, that's so key to someone like Wesley and Wilberforce, but that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, John Newton, the former slave trader, was used by God to lead to the abolition of slavery in the UK and beyond the Americas, because the evangelicals were at the forefront of that. And that speaks to my own heart. As I said to Eric on the phone last night, I was in a context several years ago speaking to these issues because he said this is a passion of my, wife, my, my life. My wife is a Japanese national. My kids are dual citizens. 
Uh, I've partnered with Perkins and others on matters of race and class divisions, especially in a consumer church cultural context. And I remember speaking primarily to a group of mainline Protestants uh, who were Ivy Leaguers at one point, who rejected completely the message that I was bringing in terms of this challenge to the race and class divisions in a consumer church. And I was surprised. I thought they, with all their concern for justice, would affirm most what I was saying because I have often found this message rejected by my own people, the evangelicals. And I realized that we're so often two sides of the same coin. But a man came to me the next day after a talk I had given where it got really thrown back in my face on the matter of these themes of race and class divisions in a consumer church cultural context and how God's grace wants to liberate us when we break down these divisions in the church and the society at large. One of them came to me the next day and said, we failed God last night when we didn't identify with what you were saying. And just as the evangelicals in Wesley and Wilberforce's day were seen as the pariah of the cultural context in England, because Wesley and Wilberforce were demeaned, Wesley could not preach in the church, he had to go off to the graveyards to speak, Wilberforce lost much of his life, so to speak, his health was hurt, his finances were hurt by his struggle to fight against slavery. He said the liberals talked a good talk, but the evangelicals, though they were the pariah, they were the ones who actually did the work. Where have we been? By the grace of God, we're moving forward now. May we not lose sight of the vertical internal transformation, but may we really engage holistically in social transformation. And I was encouraged that I was being seen by this man from outside of our context as someone who was in the school of thought of Wesley and Wilberforce and Newton. Am I today? Are we today in our own context in North America? I hope that God will spend my lifeblood on these issues because these are huge demonic issues that face the church today. And I grieve because I feel that so often in the American church context, there's still so much of a hardness of heart and our own hearts, like the Apostle Paul's, need to be set free. So, that being said, the church's witness today, reaching Onesimus, reaching Onesimus while in prison and willing to suffer loss for his social freedom. It would cost Philemon to free Onesimus. There was much to be lost, I'm sure, by freeing his slave. And Paul says, if he's done you any harm, put that on my account and I will pay the bill. So there is a cost factor here whenever we get involved in this concern for the captive being set free. Whether it's the sex trade, the slave trade, or other forms of marginalization for the migrant communities, if we get involved, be aware of the fact that there is a price to be paid. And these people, namely Paul and I believe Philemon, were willing eventually, I believe, to pay the price for Onesimus to be freed. Eric said I could share a few lines from uh, commentary. And actually, this was from Bible Gateway's commentary online, which I'd encourage you to look at. I was really impressed with the commentary on Philemon. And here's what it said. The real purpose of Paul's letter is to convince Philemon to make a radical choice of splankna, that is compassion, the heart, the guts, that will help to mark out his congregation as one where the koinonia, the fellowship, the communion of faith is found. In this light, then, Paul's request intends two results. It intends a change in Onesimus' social status, presumably through his manumission, that is, his freedom from slavery. And it intends a change in Philemon's spiritual status, presumably through his reconciliation with Onesimus 
as a brother and a partner in the faith. And my question here, I've already made mention of it earlier, my question here is Paul simply speaking of a change of attitude or more than that, a change of social relationship. Moving on. The idea held by some that Paul is speaking of a change of attitude rather than a change of social relationship so that Onesimus will resume his position as a household slave as before his conversion fails to observe the calculus of Paul's gospel. In fact, Paul's letter to Philemon clarifies and extends the ethical implications of the gospel set forth in the household code of his letter to the Colossians. The book of Philemon's moral vision is that social hierarchies, such as the one between a powerful owner and his powerless slave, are dismantled in Christ. The presence of koinonia, communion, that give and take, equal sharing within a society of classes, hitherto divided between those who have power and value and those who do not, gives public testimony to the powering grace, empowering grace of God. And here with this, I just want to draw attention to what Wesley, having been converted by God vertically and internally, says about the needed social transformation as he writes to his younger fellow evangelical, William Wilberforce. Dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you us to be as Athanasius Contramundum, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that, that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might to leave an American slavery. The vilest that ever saw the sun shall vanish away before it. Reading this morning a tract wrote by a poor African, I was particularly struck by that circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress. It being a law in our colonies that the oath of a black man against a white goes for nothing. What villainy is this? that he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. And these men were willing, and women with them, were willing to lay their very lives on the line. And that is such a challenge to me, such an encouragement to me as we move forward on these issues, which we'll discuss in our closing minutes this morning. William Wilberforce says this, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. The reformation of manners was not social etiquette about how to have better manners at the table. It was how to get women off the street from uh, the sex trade and girls and children off the streets, so to speak. That was what he was talking about in addition to the slave trade of the Americas and England itself. I will move on at this point for the sake of time, but I want to get at this theme that I see so much in Philemon and all of Paul's writings, but here in Philemon as well. Paul having been converted, and Philemon, no doubt, having been converted somehow in relationship to Paul's ministry, must have that heart of compassion. In fact, it flows from our conversion, from our regeneration. It flows that transformation that leads us to have that heart, that splachna, that 
gut change, of identifying with people from the heart, that love, which leads to true communion. That is the path, often of most resistance in our culture, but that's the path that the gospel takes. Jesus' church, then, is called and set free to be a family, not a fraternity. Called to be a family, not a fraternity. And here I want to get at that theme of what I mean by koinonia, koinonia or fellowship, communion. I'll pose this as a rhetorical question. I'll pose this as a rhetorical question. What is the difference between a fraternity and a family? A fraternity and a family. As I see it, a fraternity in a school context at a university would be something like this. People are chosen based on skills, based on status, based on tastes, likings, attraction, attractiveness. That's what I see fraternity is about. And Paul had to challenge that even in the Corinthian context because 1 Corinthians 11 with the Lord's table, there was this class division and the rich, the wealthy, the middle class, the upper middle class and the like, the wealthy were having communion all within the context of the dining room of the house church and out in the courtyard with the poor and they could not be brought in. They would not be brought in. And Paul says, not on my watch. We're not going to operate as a fraternity, but as a family. And so all must be brought in. The family of God were chosen based on God's call of love that creates the attraction. As Martin Luther said, God's love creates the attraction. Our attractiveness does not bring about God's love toward us. And that, to me, is the good news of the gospel. God's love creates the attraction, not our attractiveness creates God's love. This love creates the attraction, not an attraction that creates God's love. Personal transformation leading to social transformation will have an effect on social strata erasure through compassionate love, which is key to evangelism. I love that the Palau Association has moved from crusades to even a good festival uh, of belonging and community to this season of service. And now they have even other language for it of this community of service, this ongoing connection of service in the community at large, which is key to evangelism. It's key. A church's level of compassion involves this. It's marked by its sense of being reached by God, and it marks its level of outreach. There's a sense in which we can even look at our lives and say, our lives are a barometer. Not that we're assured by our works in my estimation, but rather the fruit of our faith shows forth in how engaged we are in the community at large in terms of social transformation. How much do we sense that we're debtors of God's grace? Hearts set free lead to the freedom of righteous relations with others. There's an erasure of guilt before God bearing upon a debt of gratitude. And again, the removal of this social strata um, division. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus were called to die to their entitlements, to live into their election by grace. What about us? Two stories that come to my mind in this regard are from a student of mine, now uh, a colleague of mine, uh, 
His name is Ross. And Ross, like Eric, and I've just been so grateful for Eric's friendship, but they both used to mess with me in, in class. And any gray hairs I have, I, I have to say I'm a debtor to their, their kindness to me in class. But uh, my, my friend Ross had said that he thought he was actually, as he looks back on it, though he was raised in a strong Christian home, right out here in this area of Oregon, he said he believed that he was really not a Christian until he, my theology class. He said he was pushing against me, pushing against me left and right on these matters that I was talking about with theology, similar to the theology I'm presenting today. And finally one day, somehow or another, God's grace broke through to him that all of his attempts at rational prowess, all of his attempts at his virtue and the like, he realized were somehow a pretense to somehow make up for the lack of sensing God's love in his life. And he realized what he needed more than anything was a sense of God's grace and mercy and God's love. Not that Ross's attractiveness could create God's love, but God's love creates the attraction. And Ross said that his heart was strangely warm. And I've watched Ross grow. And it's been a blessing to watch Eric grow too as a Christian leader. Just I'm so grateful for what God's doing in, in your life, my friend, as a Christian leader. And what God's doing in your and Jerry, Jerry Lynn's life and this church's life. It's just good to be with you this morning. What I sense from Ross, and I've sensed over the years from him, he and his wife live in a trailer park. Not that he needs to. And he comes from a well-to-do background. He worked at Intel. He had it all made for himself. And he kind of put it all aside. Not that we have to do the same thing as he did, but his heart was set free in such a way that even here he lived in Hillsboro on Main Street, I believe it was, and he moved in with a Hispanic family. Moved in with a Hispanic family who, they didn't have much going for them, this particular family. And the husband went to jail. And the wife, and this is still when he was a student, he was one of my teaching assistants at the time, the wife was going to sell her body on the street she was tempted to do this because she didn't have enough to care for their kids while her husband was in jail. And Ross broke down in tears, which I had never seen before, ever, in my class. Broke down in tears about just God breaking through to his heart of what could he do to identify with this family with whom he lived right here in Hillsboro. That kind of connection, though, comes at a cost. A friend of mine is a pastor in Tigard. And he was given a pastorate, and the, the church, he'd been part of this denomination for quite some time. His name is David. And the denomination said, why don't you just remove the staff and start afresh? Because they're not going to get your connection to the community at large and your desire to evangelize the community. And he said, oh, I want to be patient. I want to give them the opportunity to grow. I'm going to take this slow and see if the staff and the church will go with me as we move from an insular church to a church that's geared toward the community at large. Well, at first, people were saying, this is great that we're going to be concerned for the community at large. Philemon probably thought, this is great that we're going to be concerned for the community at large. But it comes at a cost. And as he opened the doors of the church with the people, and at first they said, this is good. But then after a while, those who paid the bills for the church and like said, you know what, we're not too crazy about the kind of people coming into church. We're not too crazy about this because they're getting the carpet dirty. And, and such. And the pastor said, you know what? But they're being saved. He said, yeah, but we don't like the fact that the carpet's getting dirty. And so they stopped coming to church. There's a cost to these things. They stopped coming to church. 
And many people of well-to-do means left because it wasn't part of their niche consumer cultural trappings of what they wanted associated with Christianity. And that's a challenge for me because I love a certain kind of hygiene and I love my kind of class, though I have not much going for me. Still, I like to be with my kind of people. And God wants to break through to my own cold heart so that I can really sense my need for others. And David stayed the course. And while the staff left and many well-to-do people left, they stayed the course. People have continued to come. The church is being rejuvenated, but it looks very different. We've sensed some of this perhaps even in my own church context. We're going through some real struggles as a church, but we're going to be intentional on making sure that we keep the doors open to all people and the like. And the great thing about it, and I think one of the beautiful things about this church here, is that the kind of koinonia that Paul is talking about with Philemon, you have the opportunity, this privilege, as you sense it, to work so closely with this Seventh-day Adventist congregation where they're opening their doors to you. There's a sense in which you need them to be as hospitable as they are so that you can flourish as a community. That's the kind of koinonia that Paul's talking about. It's not a charity where they're going to be the beneficiaries of our goodwill, but we can learn so much from people, people of Hispanic background and other cultural backgrounds, because hospitality is not something I know how to spell too well. I always have a tendency to spell it as indifference or, at worst, hostility rather than hospitality. Portland, we know a lot about tolerance, but tolerance is not the same thing as hospitality and love. And this is a great opportunity that you're seizing to really live into the wholeness of the gospel because we cannot have the internal and the vertical apart from the social transformation. The two are not separate. And the one is a sign of how transformed we are from the heart. And so Paul says that to Philemon, that he looks to him to live into this debt of gratitude. Some have said that Onesimus became a bishop, this slave in Philemon, that he was uh, a slave, though he was freed, and that eventually he would become a bishop, which would have meant he would have been over Philemon in the church. Some dispute this, that they say that Onesimus did not become this bishop who died in AD 68 by the name of Onesimus. One way or another, the potential is always there in the gospel that those who are most in need by the world standards, those who are weakest, those who are most um, in need of wisdom and who are foolish are the very ones God raises up to overturn the tables, to bring down upward mobility so that we might be seized by God's downwardly mobile love. And I want to be experiencing that love anew because I see it throughout the Bible, throughout the Gospels, throughout Paul's epistles, and especially in Philemon, where it moves from the heart, where we actually see Onesimus as God's heart, and that we would seek to be used by God to free others, and in so doing, that somehow God would continue to free us. We're all in need of Onesimus today. We're all in need of God's grace to free us through this hospitable, life-transforming grace and love that we see issued forth by Paul as he speaks to Philemon. May God bring his word home to our hearts and lives. May God continue to transform my own heart and life that I'd be willing to move forward into this calling, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we go forward together of the church of the greater Portland area, freed by God's grace 
to be used by God to set others free. Amen.